all of life comes down to answering two questions. Who is we, who is he, and who are we? So who is God, and who are we? And you stand no shot of getting the second question correct unless you get the first question correct. Now the good news is, the Lord's Prayer answers the questions for us. And I hope by now you could write down some of those answers. Who is he? He's our Father through what Jesus has done. He's holy, therefore we are to prioritize him above all other things. And he's a king, and our responsibility is not to build our own kingdoms, but to be part of extending his kingdom. Well, that brings us to the second question, well, who are we? Well, so far we've learned that uh, we're needy, and we're guilty, and we're weak. And you know what happens? If you try to answer the second question first, who is we, who are we, we don't want to answer the, with those hard answers. So we dream up others. Well, we've got our acts together. We're able to make this work. I can figure it out. Well, no, who is he, who are we? We're needy, we're guilty, and we're weak. And if we could get that right, understanding who is he and understanding who are we, Life will go a whole lot better, and we'll be fulfilling what God calls us to do. Now, the last couple of weeks, we actually recited the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this morning, I want to read it to you. A little different than what you're used to saying. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 15, or 9, 9 through 13. And we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. I'll point out a couple of things, and then we'll get to the phrase that we're going to look at today. Verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, we're going to look at that last request today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But um, let me paraphrase it for you um, before we jump in and look at some of the details. Keep me from being zapped. That's what it means. Keep me from being zapped. Now, look, I'm all about spring and summer. And I'm reminded that those seasons are coming. Uh, the Philadelphia truck left this week, headed to spring training, left Citizens Bank Park. And I pretty much like everything about spring and summer except the bugs. You kind of forget in winter that summer's full of bugs depending on where you go, but you're quickly reminded of that. If you're eating at somewhere outside, if you're at a friend's house having a barbecue, you're reminded this is a buggy season. But sometimes a restaurant or a friend will have a bug zapper. And you know how they work, right? You'll be sitting minding your own business, and you don't even notice it at first, and then you hear that unmistakable zap. And I always think to myself, that one will never get me. That one will never get me. And, and lots of bugs fly close to that very tempting, that alluring light, and they get too close and zap. Now, I often think to myself, bugs are really stupid, right? Like, think of it this way. Here you are with Billy and Bobby kind of flying around doing your buggy thing, and all of a sudden Billy and Bobby take off for the blue light. Zap, zap, they never come back. But the little bug never thinks, 
I should stay away from that light. Or if he gets a little close, he doesn't look at the tray of all those bug carcasses at the bottom and say, probably shouldn't get too close, right? Bugs are dense. You know, only bugs would be so stupid, right? Something alluring, something tempting that lots of other people have sabotaged their lives on, but only bugs would get too close to that, right? Politicians, zap. <laughs> Church leaders, zap. School teachers, zap. Business owners, zap. Managers, zap. Team members, zap. We're all prone to that, right? Something about that blue light, something about that internal mechanism that connects with that external cause, and all of a sudden, we're flying too close, and it doesn't matter what history means. It doesn't matter you to sit and reason. You get too close and zap. Now, let me show you a couple things or about the, that phrase and about that prayer before we kind of work our way through. Um, Lead us not into temptation. That does not mean, when you, when you and I pray that, we are not praying, Lord, don't ever bring a test my way. Don't ever allow difficulty to come. I don't ever want to experience stress and pressure. You may pray that, but that's not what that prayer says. We know that that's not true because right after Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit led him into the desert to be tested. And so our, that prayer request can't mean keep all difficulty, pressure, and stress away from me. Don't ever let it touch my way. That's not what it's saying. That's not what we're praying. Here's what we are praying. Lord, when those tests and temptations come, keep me from succumbing to them. Keep me from surrendering to them. Keep me from giving in to them. That's what the request is. And I noticed that this week, and maybe, for the first, maybe I thought about it before and I forgot, but I noticed this week for the first time, um, as we read through the Lord's Prayer, and I didn't want us to recite it, because if we recited it together, you would not have stopped at verse 13, right? The end of verse 13 says, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. We would have kept saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever, amen. But that's not in here. Now, some of the older versions may actually have that, but you need to understand that phrase is not original. Right? It's, it actually comes from a place in the Old Testament. It's not here. Well, I, I can understand the scribe's pressure, right? I can understand his willingness, right? So he's copying the text, and all of a sudden he says, um, lead us not into temptation, deliver. Oh, I don't want the prayer to end with the evil one. I'll add something else to get our reflection back on God. Yeah, but I think he should have stopped writing. Because here's what the prayer does. If you have your Bible on the front, you, you look at it. In the original, the first word of the Lord's Prayer is Father. And the last word in the Lord's Prayer is Evil One. Do you think that that's just a coincidence as Jesus gives the prayer? I think structurally what Jesus is saying, we don't live on a neutral playing field. There is God who's holy. 
There's God who's our father. There's God who wants us to extend his kingdom. And there's an evil one whose intent is to destroy and disrupt and taint everything God's about. We, we live life between those two poles. We live life between extending God's kingdom and turn, or turning our backs on that, following our evil desires that are orchestrated by the evil one. Well, what this prayer says is, Lord, keep me faithful to the Father part and allow me not to succumb, not to give in, not to surrender to the influences of the evil one. You see, structurally, the prayer is all about living life, and we live life between God as our Father and the evil one who wants to pull us away. Well, with that as kind of an overview, let's uh, jump into to looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the first thing you need to notice um, is that tests in life are designed to lead us to maturity, right? Tests are designed to lead us to maturity. Right, let me ask you a question. How many of you are teachers? Raise your hand. I know we have a bunch of teachers. There, there we go, a bunch of teachers. I, I was a teacher for a number of years. And um, a few things I know about teachers, they give lots of tests. Now, why do they give tests? Because they're nasty. No, no, no. Well, why do teachers give tests? Well, there's a really good motive for giving tests. I remember um, years ago, I was in college, and uh, I had this teacher that I hated. And I'll tell you why I hated him. I hated him because the first day of class is what he said. I know how all of you students operate. You never study, you never crack a book, you never prepare until the night before the test. And so what I'm going to do in this course, we're going to have three major tests throughout the semester. But I'm not going to tell you when we're giving them. What the heck? He said, I want you to be prepared every week for the possibility of a test. I hated him from that day on, right? And we had three tests, and they were unannounced. The one came real early. We're like three weeks into the course. Up oh, today, we're not having a lecture. Major test today. Uh, a few weeks later, major test. And there was someone around the final who could figure that one out. Now, what was his motive? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I do know this. Tests designed properly are to show us Tests are designed to show you what you know. But our problem is we often cram. So rather than learn and grow, we wait till the night before and try to do this miraculous, have this miraculous growth spurt the night before the test. But tests are designed to show you what you know, and tests are designed to grow you. Tests show us, and tests grow us. When you're studying for a test or when you take the test, you actually realize what you know and what you don't know. But knowing the test is coming, preparing for the test, actually taking the test, should grow. It's not just to show you, it's to grow you. Now, there aren't only tests that happen in a classroom, right? It's winter. In case you haven't noticed, it's winter. The last couple of days have been all right. It's winter. And um, here's the thought that may be happening in your head. I think this happens in my head. Boy, this winter, uh, I'm already taking care of myself. Working out a little bit, watching what I eat. And then all of a sudden, May comes, and you put a bathing suit on. 
putting the bathing suit on is like a test, right? Stepping onto the scale, trying on the suit that you hadn't worn since last summer, all of us, that test shows you, right? Or maybe you say to yourself, um, I, I, I think I'm really healthy in them. But you set up the doctor's appointment, you go in and you run the, well, you've got some issues here we need to work on. Or maybe you have to go to the dentist, right? And you think you don't have any cavities, don't have any problems, no major problems. Well, when you sit in the dental chair, that's kind of a test. Well, tests should show us what's really going on. And tests grow us if we take the information from the test and we apply it to make some remediation, some change in our life. Tests are actually good things. The motivation behind a test should be to show us and grow us. But boy, sometimes the tests come our way and we immediately, why, why me, why now? Rather than saying, here are opportunities for me to be shown, for me to get real data. And here are opportunities for me to make changes so that I can grow. But here's the problem. Tests lead us to maturity, or should. They show us and grow us. But temptations often lead us to sin. Now, here's the really weird thing. You may not know this. In Greek, the word test and the word tempt are the same word. Well, how the heck do you know what it is? Well, the context has to tell you what it is. Here's the point. It's all about motivation. There are some nasty teachers that give tests so you'll fail. But a good teacher give te gives tests to grow you. A bad teacher gives tests as temptations to get you to fail. So here's how it works. Think of the two bookends of the, of the prayer again, right? God, in our language, right, in English, God gives us tests. He allows tests into our lives to show us and grow us. He wants us to grow and be mature. The evil one tempts us. The motivation is not for success and growth. The motivation is to trip us up, to ruin us, and get us off track. See how that works? Same word, two different motivations. Now, our problem is that whenever temptation, whenever trials, whenever difficulties, troubles come, we immediately want to kind of slither out of them. But God wants to use them. Think of the first part of the prayer. God allows these things into our lives, kind of like rungs on a ladder that we can climb and grow. The evil one wants the same thing. He wants to infuse that test with negative impulses to lure us off so we fall off the ladder. And isn't it true in your life? And it was true in mine. The same exact thing. Maybe a test. Or it may be a temptation. And the question comes down to, how will you use that particular event? How will you operate within it? Well, here's how we should. Jesus tells us in this prayer. We need to process the tests and temptations, process, process those pressure-packed, stressful moments and experiences with the first part of the prayer in view. Process them with God's love. Rather than thinking immediately when pressure comes, difficulties come, oh, God's forgotten me, God's left, this is punishment for something I've done wrong. No, think of the early part. God is our Father, and he's bringing these things into our lives, not to make our lives miserable, not to ruin us. He's allowing these thing in, things into our lives so that we become wise, so that we become mature, so that we become strong. Think of the human examples we have. 
You go to a doctor, hopefully for your physical annual, whatever it is. You go to your, what does your doctor do? I know what he does. He hurts you. But he hurts you in order to make you healthy. You go to a gym and you get assigned a trainer. What does the trainer do? He hurts you to make you strong. What does your father, what do your parents sometimes do? They hurt you. Not physically, right? They hurt you. Say no when you want them to say it. Why did they do that? Not to make your life miserable. They do that so that you will become mature. Interestingly, those three metaphors, physician, trainer, father, are often used in the Bible to describe God and his role in our lives. Physicians want us to be healthy. Trainers want us to be strong. Fathers want us to be mature. Notice the motivation behind those three is test. The motivation is growth. The motivation is not to trip you up. The motivation is not to have you fall off the ladder. The motivation is so that there will be a positive growth-oriented end. But the only way you're going to have that perspective, and I'm going to have that perspective, is if we keep the first part of the prayer in mind. If I take my eyes off of my Father in heaven, I take my eyes off of the fact that he's holy and he knows what he's doing and cannot come close to evil, and if I take my eyes off of the fact that he's a king who rules and governs justly, if I can process my pressure, the stress, the test, through the lens of who God is, I will see it as a test. But if you take your eyes off of who God is in the first part of the prayer and you put yourself into the focus first, all of a sudden, what should be a test for you to grow on becomes a temptation that's pulling you away from what your Father wants you to do. We need to process the difficulties, the suffering, etc., in life through the lens of who God is, the first part of the prayer. You ever notice them that the same sun... You know, sun in the sky. The same sun on a warm day makes wax soft and pliable and makes clay hard and brittle. Same sun, same heat. Hmm. What is that test? What is that temptation? What is that situation in your life? Is it softening you or hardening you? Is it making you more malleable? And Are you recognizing more that you're needy, that you're guilty, and that you're weak? What, what is lead us not into temptation? That's a prayer. Recognizing our weakness, but the strength of God. That's what the prayer is. I'm weak. I'm not going to make this my own. But Lord, you as my Father can help me. Process the difficulties through God's love and through He is who He is. Not looking at it primarily from who you are. Now, interestingly, and we don't have time to tease this out, here's a challenge for you. Super Bowl's later today. Uh, Taylor's already in the country, so that's good, right? Um, how did Jesus practice this? Jesus always walked and moved toward victory. Now, do you think Jesus, you read the Gospels, did he live between God as his father and the evil one trying to pull him astray? You bet he did. And it started early. I mentioned at the beginning of the message, right after Jesus is baptized, right? Now, re remember what booms from heaven? The Father from heaven says, as Jesus comes out of the water, <coughs> God the Father says, this is my son 
whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Boy, that's father stuff, right? I mean, that's holy. That's kingdom stuff. That's the whole first half of the prayer. That's who God is. What happens immediately out of the water, Jesus is then led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, and all of a sudden he starts hearing other voices. Jesus, I know you're hungry. I haven't eaten for a while. Hey, you've got the ability. Why don't you turn some of these rocks into bread? That'd be good, right? You don't even need butter, right? What bread out here? Jesus, look, I know you've come, and you deserve to be worshipped. You know what? If you take a flying leap off of this tower, well, God's angels will rescue, and the people will worship you. Jesus, I have all these people under my influence. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you. Uh, Two poles, right? Father, evil one, Jesus always lived his life knowing who is he and who are we. How are you navigating those poles? As Jesus goes through life, the same voices are there. His father calling him to extend the kingdom and build the kingdom. The evil one trying to get him off track and trip him up. Jesus lived the same place that we live, between the two. And how about in Gethsemane, the night before the biggest trial of his life, Jesus even says, Lord, if there is any way for me to move on without this cross, I really want to take that route. But not my will. Your will be done. You're my father. You're holy. You're my king. He lived life between the two, right? Jesus always walks in victory. And that victorious life gets credited to us because he not only pays the debt we owe for our guilt and for our debts, he then transfers all of his righteousness to our account. It's kind of a win-win for us. Well, I want to end kind of the way I ended last week. A different parable. By saying this, if the themes of the Lord's Prayer if the themes of the Lord's Prayer are the themes of the Bible, the themes of the Gospel, the themes of the New Testament, and the themes of Matthew, then we should expect that those themes aren't just in the prayer. We see them all over the place. And in fact, we do. There's a parable told in Matthew 25. It's often called the parable of the bags of gold or the parable of talents. And uh, here's the deal. The, uh, the master is going on a trip, and he brings his servants in, and he gives them uh, different amounts of resource. He gives the first guy uh, five talents, second guy two, third guy one. They, they're starting in a different place. Well, the first two guys quickly make investments, do different things, and the first guy doubles his money. The second steward doubles his money. The third guy says, I know that you're a hard man. You try to get, you know, water out of a rock. You try to get what you haven't really shown. And so what I did, I dug a hole. And I took that talent and I buried it. Here's your talent. And Jesus says, you wicked, lazy slave. What? You should have at least taken the money and put it in the bank. At least I'd get interest. And I always scratch my head thinking, it would have been easier for the guy to do that, right? He worked up a sweat dig in a hole. If, if you went to the bank and you show up at the tower, give her, the, give, her, give her the talent, right? Well, no, he digs a hole. He's working at this. What's he doing? He's hiding. He's concealing. No investment. What does Jesus then say? He says to the first guy, well done, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, I will reward you. Second one, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he says to the third guy, take the talent from him. Give it to the guy who has ten. And you may say, Charles, why are we already ending with that story? Well, here's a reason. The real test <coughs> for me and the real temptations for me are not like off-the-chart, grandiose thing. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not above any of that. But, you know, I, the real temptations for me are not murder. Every once in a while, I reach out. There are a few people I won't take out. But, but usually it's not murder. You know, it's not embezzlement. It's not bank robbery. It's not leading over. Those are not the things I struggle with. Here's what I struggle with. I struggle with mixing up the two halves of the Lord's Prayer. I struggle with rather than your kingdom come, your will be done. I replace that with, Charles, your kingdom come, your will be done. But that's what I struggle with. I struggle with moving the second half of the prayer that it's moving my, removing my focus off of God, putting it on me, and I want God to be a supporting actor in my story rather than me being a supporting actor in his. That's where I wrestle. And you know what? If you make that switch, it leads to all that horrendous stuff too. So I want to end with a few questions. Questions that I wrestled with this week and I want you to wrestle with right now. You may want to write these down. If not, I really want you to sit there and honestly assess. Because this is a test. Maybe it's a temptation. It's a test. Don't leave without making the right adjustments. I'm just going to walk through a couple of questions. Based on the prayer, our main problem of mixing up the halves in the parable... In Matthew 25. Here's the first question. What talents, resources, have I been given? You know what the reality of that parable is? You didn't earn any of what you've got. None of it. Now you may be saying, Charles, how dare you? I worked hard. Yeah, okay, what'd you work hard with? You worked hard with the body that God gave you. You worked hard with the network of relationships. You worked really hard with the IQ that God gave you. We have nothing, right? So what have you done? Or what talents have you been? So sit and think about it, right? You've got a body that's semi-healthy. You've got some money, some resources. You've got abilities. You've got talents. You've, you've got some wounds. You ever notice that often we minister best through our wounds than we minister through our successes so what talents have you been given now remember we don't own them just like in the parable we're stewards of them what have i been given you know that would be a really good assignment this week you'd be amazed at all of the wonderful marvelous gracious things you've been given just given god just gave them to us right it's amazing well here's the second question Well, but what will I do with what I've been given? But now, now, before you answer that, let me ask you a prior one. What have you done with what you've been given? Have you invested it? Have you buried it? Have you squandered it like the prodigal son? What have you done with what you've been given? And what will you do with what you've been given? How will you put it into play? You know, we heard um, about the middle school retreat. There was one phrase at Huddle uh, this week when, the, when we were getting a little debrief on that. One of the student, student leaders said, 
I did not, and our leaders do not make a sacrifice to be with these middle schoolers. We make an investment in the middle school. Okay, now apply that to your life and to this parable and to the question. What have you been given and what are you doing? Where are you investing it? In other words, which kingdom are you building, right? Third question. What could keep me from being a good and faithful steward? I purposefully use the word steward there, right? Steward is not the owner. The owner has entrusted something to the steward. What, what could keep you from doing what you know you should do? And right now in the sanity of looking at the Lord's prayer in the second half, of it, what, what will keep you from investing wisely what God's given you? Oh, yeah, one last question. What words do you want to hear when this life is over? I know we don't think about that much because we don't like to think about the end of life and all that, but what words do you want to hear? Think of a parable. Well done, good and faithful steward. Or, away from me, you wicked, lazy, non-investing Wretched father. Well, you can answer that question and those questions that we just did any way you want. And I know in this setting, sitting in a church service, you'll get good answers, right? You will answer the questions accurately after you leave the building. Where are you going to invest your resources today? Whether it's money, time, talents, tra- whatever it is. Where are you making those investments? Where are you going to do it today? Where are you going to do it this week? Those little investments, day by day, week by week, month by year by year, those investments in where you make them determine the words you'll hear at the end. Ball's on our court, right? Our loving Father and our faithful Savior tells us how to live. Between father and evil one. That's where we live life. Choose the right path. And you'll hear the words you want to hear. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love and for your grace. Thanks for telling us all that we need to know in the scripture. We can't say that we'll be blindsided by this. You've told us right up front how it works. So, Lord, we ask that we would make wise investments today, this week, and for the rest of our lives, regardless of how long that is, and regardless of what the past has been, help us to invest wisely. And, Lord, may we hear, well done, good and faithful servants, just like Jesus heard when he accomplished our salvation and returned home. We pray in his name. Amen.